On Wednesday, June 21st, The Washington Post hosted the second of its Addiction in America live interview series, which convenes policymakers, researchers, and healthcare experts to examine the country's opioid crisis. In this segment, Addiction Crisis and Nation Responds, Congressional reporter Mike DeBonis talks with Democratic Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, Greg Walden, who chairs the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and Congresswoman Diana DeGette, Chief Deputy Whip of the House Democratic Caucus. The panel discussed how Congress is responding to the opioid epidemic, what bipartisan action could come from Capitol Hill, and potential regulation we could see from the states. Let's listen. You all to sit down now. (laughs) So joining me on stage, and pardon me just a moment while I adjust this. First off, we have Congresswoman Diana DeGette of Colorado. She's a senior Democrat on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. She's the ranking Democrat on the Oversight Investigation Subcommittee. She co-sponsored the co-authored the 20th Century Cures Act, which uh, put a billion dollars of new federal uh, funds into the uh, opioid epidemic to combat it. She's also the chief deputy whip of the Democratic House Democratic Caucus. Thank you very much, Congresswoman. Senator Markey, Senator Ed Markey is here of Massachusetts, Democrat and uh, member of the Senate Commerce Committee, which has broad jurisdiction over private industry, including the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, he's done numerous uh, investigations and authored numerous pieces of legislation uh, to address this crisis. He's going to talk quite a bit about that. And last but not least, Chairman Greg Walden is with us today of Oregon, Republican of Oregon. Uh, he is. Uh, uh, he has drawn attention to the, the opioid epidemic as it's uh, uh, affected his district in, in rural East, Eastern Oregon. Uh, he has uh, also uh, uh, plays a key role in overseeing the, the health sector of our economy. He played a key role in drafting the, the American Health Care Act, which is now going through uh, the, the congressional process. And uh, we're, we're, we're going to give you an opportunity to talk about that legislation and the, the oversight that you've done on your committee. Thank you very much for being here. Um, let me start with uh, Senator Markey. Uh, and this is a question I'm going to throw to everybody on the, uh, on the panel today. But tell me how you first experienced this crisis as a crisis. When did you understand that this is something that needed your attention? And what did you see in your state? that compelled you to act? Uh, It was Taunton, Massachusetts. Um, It was uh, Martin Luther King Day, uh, January 15th, 2014. I was standing in the back of the room getting ready to give my speech and I said to the police chief and the mayor, Mayor Hoy in Taunton, uh, what's the biggest issue? And I said, well, we've lost seven people to overdoses in just the last couple of weeks. And then I said to the chief, I said, well, what's the issue? And he said, well, they're now lacing the heroin with fentanyl. Then he explained to me about fentanyl. uh, And I brought back Gil Kurlikowski, the drug czar for the United States, the next month into uh, Taunton. And the numbers are huge. In Massachusetts, in 2016, we lost 2,000 people. Uh, to uh, uh, overdose uh, deaths, opioid-related deaths. Um, 
uh, where only 2% of America's population, if, if the whole country was dying at our rate, that would be 100,000 people in a year. That would be two Vietnam Wars every single year. Um, of those who died, the 2,000, 70% had fentanyl in their system. That would be 1,400 people in Massachusetts last year. You extrapolate that out for the whole country, that would be 70,000 people dying from fentanyl-related uh, overdoses in one year. Uh, that is now something that is going to hit the rest of the country. Uh, slowly but surely, we, Massachusetts is a preview of coming attractions. Only 33,000 people died from opioid overdoses in the whole country last year. We're three times uh, worse than the national rate. Uh, but unless we put in place um, the prevention and treatment programs, um, we are going to see this epidemic just explode even further. And from that moment, uh, in Taunton, when the police chief uh, and the mayor told me about fentanyl. Uh, it has been just a predictor of this catastrophe spreading inexorably, inevitably across the country. And what year was that, Senator? That January of 2014. So it was mm -hmm. 14, 15, 16. We're now halfway through 2017. Uh, and the numbers have skyrocketed since right. 2014 in Massachusetts, as they have across the whole country. And to just you know put in a plug for my, my distinguished colleagues, if you pick up a copy of today's Washington Post, there's a story in there with, with an amazing statistic that illustrates the, the scope of this issue that uh, in 2014 you had one point, nearly 1.3 million emergency room visit or visits or inpatient stays for opioid-related issues in 2014. That's a 99% jump for emergency room treatment compared to 2005. Yeah. That's the, it's a remarkable statistic. And sure. by the way, that 2014 number, which is, and that's a great story on the front, in the Washington Post today, that number is much, much higher today mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. And, and we were the second worst state uh, uh, on that list in the study that the Post had today. Uh, and we're, we, we have a, a much worse problem today than we had in 2014. Chairman Walden, let me ask you, uh, you represent Eastern Oregon. Uh, a, a, it's a rural community, largely rural, some of the most beautiful country in America. But what's happening there? What have you seen? And what was the moment you when know, you realized there was something that needed to well, be done? Well, I've done a, a series of roundtables a couple of years ago. <clears throat> and I always remember um, just a couple of examples. There was a woman um, in Hermiston, Oregon, uh, rural eastern Oregon, who talked about her addiction to opioids. She's now a, a treatment counselor. But trying to get off of it was almost impossible. She wanted to get on to Suboxone, I think, that, that helps you get off of it. There was no physician in the immediate area that could help her. So she would commute five and a half hours each way into Washington State where she could get treatment and finally get off. And then down in Southern Oregon in Medford, I, I did a roundtable with law enforcement, addiction specialists, hospital people, and, and family. And this fellow was sitting in the back. He wasn't actually part of the round table. Um, but I called on him and said, what, what brings you here? He said, uh, my son. My son was an athlete in high school and got injured and got prescribed opioids uh, to deal with the pain. And tragically got hooked and went to the cheaper, uh, more potent version of that. You would know it as heroin. And he said uh, he, he succumbed to that. He said, my sister was a nurse 
Same sort of scenario. She got hooked on it. She would write her own prescriptions, forging the doctor's uh, prescription pad, got caught, moved on somewhere else, took it up again. The addiction overwhelmed her, and she too had died. And, and then you begin to talk to everybody else in your communities how they're affected. And this, this addiction explosion has been going on now in Oregon. We're ninth in the country, fourth for, among women. Um, but we predate that with the, the other scourge, which was methamphetamine mm -hmm. and, and the cooking and all that. And Oregon really led in this. We did work here in Washington on it like we're doing on opioids um, to get the precursor chemicals out. Oh, that still remains a big issue in eastern Oregon. Um, one of the leaders in trying to push back on this, Dr. Chuck Hoffman, who's a friend of mine, he, he was quoted recently in a, a news series about how he was <clears throat> trained as a physician to prescribe opioids to relieve pain. They were never really trained in alternative pain relief um, uh, practices. And now it's just write the pills. Mm -hmm. And so he's trying, as a physician, leading an effort to, to, to turn this around. Um, we're also seeing a dramatic increase, by the way, in 65 and older that are being treated as inpatients in hospitals because of this addiction. So it's affecting every age group. And finally, I would say there was a really troubling story as part of this series um, the Argus Observer ran about a physician who engages in the treatment and one of his patients is a rancher who uh, keeps preloaded syringes mm -hmm. in the cab of his tractor so when he's out there he can just shoot up during the day and they're loaded with heroin. And so, I mean, this is having unbelievable consequence across our country and I think we're all together in trying to figure yeah. out strategies to reduce the illegal pills in the market um, and, and to, you know, we pass legislation to reduce the <laughs> prescription amounts that have to be given. I mean, there's a lot we can yeah. do. Congresswoman, let me ask you this. You represent a different kind of district. You're, you represent a good part of Denver and its suburbs. It's an urban and suburban district. So much of the reporting on this has talked about this as a rural phenomenon um, in, in, in communities uh, like in eastern Oregon. Is that the whole picture, or is that not the whole picture? Oh, no, I mean, I mean this opioid problem, it's, it, it pervades. I think people focus on rural areas because they expect that drug and addiction issues will be urban issues, so they're mm -hmm. shocked when it's in rural Oregon. But, but I remember you were, you were asking my colleagues, when did you first, when did mm -hmm. this hit home? A couple of years ago, um, I was at the Book Lovers Ball, which is the annual fundraiser for the Denver Public Library. And I was sitting next to the Denver Public Librarian, and I said, what are the issues you're facing here at the Denver Public Library? And, I thought she would say something like, you know, cybersecurity or, or mm -hmm. access to books. She said, you know, we have people overdosing in the library every day and we need to get our librarians naloxone so that they can uh, give it to people who mm -hmm. have overdosed at the Denver Public Library. And so, um, and, and uh, now there was just a story mm -hmm. the other day in the Denver Post that um, they finally did get the librarians naloxone, but they actually had a guy die in the main library last year. They've had a number of overdoses and the librarians just open up their desks and run over. I mean, imagine, imagine that. 
And, um, and I think what, what all three of us have recognized is this really does seem to have exploded on the scene. We, we've heard stories about addiction for some years and, about, and cautions about overuse of opioids. Mm -hmm. But it really, but these stories are just exploding. And um, in, in our committee, the Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee of Energy and Commerce, we did a whole series of hearings about a year or two ago on opioids. And it was amazing how many misconceptions there were about the extent and the nature of the problem and how, how much confusion there was about what you do about it. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's not always that you have hearings that really <coughs> educate the members of Congress, but I think mm -hmm. we all learned a lot about what we need to be doing. And of course, that was part of what informed the CARA bill last summer that sure. we passed. And then the funding that you mentioned that Fred Upton and I put in our right. 21st century cures. So what, yeah, let's talk about cures briefly. Uh, that was a, a really remarkable bill, not only for what was in it, but the fact that it came together at all at a time when the parties were, <laughs> weren't last year and, and still aren't uh, uh, working together on a whole lot in a productive manner. But this was one area where Republicans and Democrats came together uh, you worked with Fred Upton, the uh, Chairman Walden's predecessor on energy and commerce, uh, to, to make this happen. And talk specifically about the, the addiction part of that bill and how that got brought into this bill that was also about so much more, including uh, you know pharmaceutical uh, development and things like that. Well, I mean, this was a bill that we worked on for about three years, and it wasn't just me and Fred. It was also Greg, and it was Ed, and his mm -hmm. Democratic and Republican colleagues in the Senate. So it was really an effort to focus on um, primarily on research at the NIH and the FDA, but as as the bill moved into its final stages, we realized that there were some, some funding issues in the healthcare space where we could really get bipartisan, bicameral um, consensus. Mm -hmm. And as I said, we had passed that CARA bill the year before. Mm -hmm. It had a lot of really good administrative programs for opioid prevention and, and treatment, but it had no money. And that was one of the biggest mm -hmm. right. uh, criticisms everybody had at that time. And so when we did uh, the Cures Bill, we were able to then say, you know, let's really put some oomph here. Let's put a sure. billion dollars in grants for state governments. Right. Chair, Mr. Chairman, let me ask you this. Um, talk about, uh, uh, pardon me for putting it in these terms, but it can be difficult for Republicans, especially House Republicans, to, to spend money on anything sometimes. Uh, but this issue was one where you, you were, there was a wide uh, agreement that something had to be done. To talk about what the what the feeling has been with the, among your Republican well, colleagues in trying to, to come together. Yeah, to I, I would I would suggest too that in 21st century cures we did mandatory spending for NIH because we believe in medical research and really the big mm -hmm. big increases in NIH's budget go clear back to the days of Newt Gingrich who believed in investing in medical research and we doubling the NIH budget. We did that. Then there was kind of a pause. Now we're trying to ramp it back. Uh, in, a, in a bigger direction and clearly uh, Diana's work and Fred's and others, Tim Murphy and others really passionate about this. The, these issues don't pick parties when they show up on your doorstep. 
Um, and I think they help bring us all together in, in common cause. And so the billion dollars in my state, we just got $65 million in grants out of that. So in pretty short order, I would argue that money not only got in there, but now is getting out onto the ground, into the field, hopefully into the hands of those professionals in our communities who know best what to do with it uh, to, to address this issue. So I think there were really good mechanical pieces, to, to Diana's point, um, in terms of changing how many people a physician could treat with Suboxone. Uh, it gets at that, my, my friend from Hermiston who had to go out of state to get treatment. Now they can treat more people. Um, you don't have to fully full, fulfill the uh, prescription. That gets excess pills out of the market, hopefully. These are all things we learned, I learned in the roundtables I did back home, and they gained the money in there. And in the AHCA, we put another $15 billion toward this. Uh, addiction and, and other things, right. but certainly in there we'll see, because it's not always about the money, it's about changing behaviors and finding best practices. I think that was part of the debate I right. heard at least, was better understanding the physician prescribing community about what what they should do, what they shouldn't do, because it, it kind of goes back to an original study that said, oh, there's no addictive nature to this, right. so feel free. If you go back, the the foundation for where we are today was built, I think, on a false premise that it was okay that these, these pills wouldn't be addictive. And so right. now we know 90 days is danger zone. Yeah. And, and so the, we need to, to do this education. Right. It turns out it wasn't even a study. It was a very short letter in right. the New England Journal of Medicine that is sort of uh, the pharmaceutical yeah. industry used as a as an, uh, uh, an explanation for prescribing these drugs. Senator, let me ask you this. There continue to be bipartisan efforts to address this. Can you talk about what you're working on right now, the Interdict Act, Act and, and other efforts uh, in the oversight realm as well to take action? Well, I'm working with Marco Rubio on a bill to uh, give uh, Customs and Border Patrol um, the technologies they need in order to detect fentanyl and uh, other substances at our border uh, so that uh, before it comes in from Mexico or from China, uh, they're able to uh, do that. I actually said to Mitch McConnell uh, two years ago that uh, Lexington, Kentucky, Lexington, Massachusetts doesn't make any difference. Um, we need a Surgeon General's report on addiction, and so... Uh, I, what I suggested to him was um, the smoking report, the Surgeon General's report in 1964 was a seminal moment. We, that is uh, Mitch, you and I, we should ask the Surgeon General to do it. And he completed it in one year, okay, which laid out now the, uh, the parameters of the problem and what needs to be done. Um, so uh, to that extent, there is a lot of bipartisanship. I was able to pass legislation with Rand Paul on uh, Suboxone, on medication-assisted therapy, so that became a part of the law as well. On the other hand, we're having a big battle right now about funding uh, in the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. and whether or not the slashing of that funding is going to have a profound effect upon the ability for people to gain access to um, the um, treatment which they need uh, the Centers for American Progress um, have concluded that $91 billion under the Affordable Care Act would have been spent uh, on substance uh, use disorders over mm -hmm. the next 10 years. Uh, and that money will not be there if, uh, if the Affordable Care Act is repealed. And so we're going to have a huge debate over whether or not 
you know, this funding is going to be there because honestly, uh, a vision without funding is an hallucination. You know, you've got to have the funding there in order to provide these programs. And this debate is now really escalating in the Senate uh, because we, the Democrats, are saying that, uh, that this opioid epidemic, this substance use disorder epidemic, is something that is going to get seriously shortchanged uh, if the proposal, as it is currently constructed, uh, becomes the law in our country. Well, let me, let me throw it to Chairman Walden. Uh, as chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, you know more than anybody else in the Capitol about what's in the American Health Care Act, which is the, the Republican health care bill that's now moving through the process. Um, it, you, certainly, Democrat, the, the, you know, that is not a bipartisan effort, as, as we all know. That, that's, this is the, re, the Republican response uh, to, the refor to the Affordable Care Act. Um, you've heard folks like Senator Markey and even some people in your own party on the Senate side talk about the, the potentially difficult effects this could, bill could have on the, uh, addiction treatment. Right. Can you uh, j just yeah. give us some facts as you see them of what this bill would do and what, what's in that bill to help sure. folks who are suffering from addiction? Yeah, thank you. Um, first of all, you, you have to sort of bifurcate it because what we do know is the individual insurance market has a lot of problems on the exchanges. And so you have a group of people who we want to make sure have insurance or access to choices in insurance, affordable insurance. And right now, state after state, county after county, we're seeing limited, more and more limited choices. Some counties may have no choice. So if you're in need of treatment and you can't get insurance, you have really no options or very few options. So we're trying to fix that insurance market. This is difficult work to do. It's difficult in the House. It's difficult in the Senate because we're all, we share a common goal of trying to make coverage available, make it affordable. Uh, on the other hand, on the Medicaid side, we believe that there's uh, enough headroom in there in the, in the about $90 billion that's there um, that we put in under uh, a provision to allow increased deductibility of health insurance costs. It was really just to move about $90 billion to make it more flexible for the Senate to make some changes. Mm -hmm. um, we put specifically $15 billion in for um, addiction treatment and, and some other related causes. In addition to the flexibility of the Patient State and Stability Fund, which gives states great flexibility to use the money either to bolster their insurance markets um, and or use it for other purposes, which could be addiction. So I, I think there's a lot there, and it's not always about the money. Um, and, and remember, early on I said that in my state we're seeing an enormous percentage uptick in people that are 65 and older. Most likely they're on Medicare, not Medicaid. That's a problem area as well that needs help. So, I mean, what we have to do is get to the root cause. You have to get to the prescription issues. You have to get to the treatment issues. I understand, uh, but we think there's, there's room there to do that. Congresswoman DeGette, I, I imagine you might have a, a differing perspective. Uh, well, I, 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 I agree. Money's not always the, the panacea, but the problem is that if people don't have insurance to pay for their treatment, then they can't get the treatment no matter what funds you set up or whatever else. And according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, under the House proposal, 23 million people will lose their insurance, even after all these funds were added at the 11th hour on the floor. And so when you have 23 million people who are either on the Medicaid expansion 
or um, are going to lose their insurance because their uh, because their premium support is reduced or whatever it is, if they can't get access to mental health treatment programs because they don't have insurance, then it doesn't do any good. And that's why many, many commentators uh, in the mental health space say that the AHCA would be very, very, uh, it would be a huge backward step for opioid treatment because people just simply wouldn't be able to get access to those programs. And, and frankly, as, as much as I love my former energy and commerce colleague, Ed Markey, I don't ever legislate in the hopes that the Senate to say, well, you know, okay, this is a problem with this bill, but I know it'll be fixed over in the Senate. I think we should get it right the first time. And I'm really concerned right now, frankly, that um, maybe Ed can talk about this, that Mitch McConnell saying he's going to bring up some bill. Not only have the Democrats not seen it, most, most of the Republicans haven't seen it either. We have no idea what that bill is going to do in terms of access to um, Medicaid in the states or to premium support mm -hmm. or anything else. And, you know, and, and Diana is right. The, the, the only thing more secret than this Republican health care bill uh, in the Senate uh, are Donald Trump's tax returns. Okay, they're, they're, we have no idea what's in it. The public has no idea what's in it. It's being put together in secret. We know it could have a profound impact on substance use disorder treatment uh, uh, and uh, and so uh, the consequences for public health in our country are profound and uh, right now this is a process uh, that has not allowed for any uh, public input any democratic bipartisan input just the opposite of the way in which the cures act and cara uh, were put together let me let me ask chairman Wall and jump back in here You've got Republican colleagues in the Senate, people like Rob Portman, Shelley right. Moore Capito, uh, who, are, who have been very outspoken right. on the uh, effect of this crisis on their states. Are you confident that, that they're, they're not going to vote for a bill that they think is going to harm their constituents in this way? Well, first of all, I'm not going to speak for sure. uh, any senator, let alone um, uh, Senator Portman. They can speak for themselves how they're going to vote or, or anything else. I do know they care deeply about these issues. I do know that throughout the discussions uh, in the House, I made a couple of presentations at the Senate Republican Conference. Um, so this, none of this was a, a secret within our world in terms of moving things back and forth. And I, I mean, the legislative process is built upon give and take between the House and the Senate and understandings and flexibility. I'm, I'm sure that's how we got to 21st century cures. It's how we got to CARA. It's how we get to major legislation. There's always give and take between the Senate, and there's communication between the Senate. Um, reconciliation traditionally is a pretty partisan uh, process by both sides, used by both sides. As you know, um, when the Affordable Care Act was first fully implemented, um, the final bill, we weren't allowed a single amendment on the House floor because it couldn't be changed because in my friend's state, um, Senator Kennedy passed away and was replaced by Scott Brown. They couldn't allow a single word to be changed, so we had no amendment capability, and then they chased it with reconciliation to try and clear up the mess. Um, and that's the law we have today, and it's crashing around the country when it comes to the individual insurance markets. You've got five states that, that may be down to one or no options, <clears throat> multiple counties. Premiums have not gone down 2,500 bucks. They've gone up. And the CBO scores has consistently been wrong based on 
principle they put on, or the power they put on the individual mandate is going to force people to buy insurance. They've been off two to one in their estimates in 2016, um, in their estimates in 2017. I mean, they, they get it wrong. They've got a tough job, but their numbers are off. We're trying to rescue that market so people have access to affordable insurance. And by the way, if you're not in that subsidized pool, I met with a woman the other day, 600 a month in premium, 16,000 in deductible. That's hardly insurance. So well, you, you've got a whole group of people out there that are suffering today, and we're trying to, to fix that market so it'll work in the well, future and people can get access to coverage. I'll just say, you know, obviously there's a there's a there's a partisan divide on this bill that we're not going to overcome today on this stage. I did want to, in our last few uh, couple minutes here, ask about another part of this. We've talked about the 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 this from the industry perspective, the the public health perspective, the the oversight perspective. Uh, this is also a criminal issue that the, you know the people are breaking the law here. Uh, Senator Mark, you talk about fentanyl and the, the the very serious problem that that very potent opioid has created. Uh, we have a, a proposal on the table now from Senator Grassley and Senator Feinstein, bipartisan proposal, to give the, uh, the federal prosecutors, the Justice Department, more powers to to take action in that regard. Uh, have you had a chance to look at that legislation? Is that something that you you you're able to support, or is there another way to go about it? Uh, well, look, we have to crack down on the, um, the, the, the really bad actors, that is these drug cartels coming in from Mexico, what China is doing. We have to elevate this importation of fentanyl up to the same level as nuclear nonproliferation and copyright protection in our discussions with the Chinese. That's the level. That's the terrorist threat on the streets of America. There's no two ways about it. That's how the American people see it. But Let's be honest, we owe an apology to an entire generation of African-American young men who we incarcerated as part of the crack cocaine uh, epidemic in the 1990s. So let's not think again that we can incarcerate our way out of this problem. We can only provide treatment to get out of this problem. And, uh, and while there might be some uh, targeted law enforcement measures that we can all come together to support, the overriding issue is providing the funding, the access to treatment and prevention for families in our country. Uh, Chair, Mr. Chairman, any, what are you hearing from the law enforcement in your district and uh, what other tools do you think they yeah, need? There, there are some communication issues that we need to carefully think through between law enforcement and the prescribing community. Um, how, do you, how do you manage uh, uh, patient uh, privacy in that realm. You know, when the when law enforcement picks somebody up, um, what are they on? How do you treat them? Uh, is there there's some communication issues there? Um, and, and I think it, it really gets back to who's issuing the prescription in the first place? And are they getting the proper consultation and best practices? Because that's where it starts. We have this other issue, and I concur, we have to deal with in terms of treatment for people who are hooked. But if it, we're now making some progress, we're, instead of issuing a 90-day prescription, it's 21. There's fewer pills out there. And we're investigating, you know, and I is investigating, will, the fentanyl issue. Mm -hmm. um, we're investigating the issue in West Virginia. How does a, a community with a few hundred people have 100 million pills going into it? 
I mean, we're doing a lot of that sort of work as right. well. I commend the Chinese for the steps they have taken, but obviously there's more to take to, to reduce uh, access. And let's look at the Postal Service. Most of this stuff's coming in through the U.S. Postal Service because they don't have the uh, tools to adequately screen it out. So we've got, we've got some of this on our own hands here that, that we have to do more work on, and, and we're going to be investigating all those through the oversight investigation. Congresswoman, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, I, I'll just end, end on a collegial note here, is that, is that what both my colleagues said is really true. We, we need so much more coordination, understanding of the pro problem, uh, coordination with pres the whole system, yep. the prescription system, the the um, the law enforcement system we didn't have that before we also need to have a, a medical understanding of how these opioids work and what the best treatment is um, in Colorado we have a consortium that has formed I just met with them the other day and they're looking at this holistic approach how do we work on on controlling how how these opioids are prescribed how do we prevent people and educate doctors and patients? And then how do we work at, at it from the law enforcement perspective? And then how do we help people who have become addicted? I think more and more people realize that holistic approach is really the approach that's going to work. And in Congress, what we need to figure out is both how to get the funding for that and also how to, how to get the programs that work. I want to end up just, Real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important. We also should not overreact. These drugs are very important in pain management when administered appropriately. Right. And, and, and so we have to understand there are a lot of people managing pain effectively with opiates. Um, we have to make sure that we don't overreact and hurt them along the way by accident. So it's a balance. Okay. Thank you very much, thank Congresswoman you. Diana DeGette, Senator Ed Markey, and Chairman Greg Walden. And thank you all. Uh, we'll have more panels for you very uh, shortly. You'll be in very good hands with my colleague, Lainey Bernstein. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Thanks, Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.